chapter 49. You can put your finger there. It will, of course, be projected on the screen somehow. If you grew up in a dysfunctional family or currently find yourself in the midst of one, don't raise your hand, please. Uh, the book of Genesis is, has no doubt been a great comfort to you. Uh, because it details the family of origin uh, of what becomes the great nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, the messianic nation through whom God would send his son to save the world. And what a messed up bunch of people, if ever there was one. If I can say that about them, they would admit it. I mean, there's no hiding from it. It's, it's all over the book of Genesis. Most of the book of Genesis is about, the, is about their shenanigans and, and their blunders and their lack of faith and their rebellion. And so they really, these people put the D in dysfunctional. That's what I got to say. So it started, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, it starts with one man, the Hebrew, the first Hebrew. Hebrew comes from the word across the river because Abraham was called when he was in Mesopotamia and he crossed the river over to the promised land. He's the first Hebrew and of course second in line Isaac his son and then Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. Jacob is in the line and then we move to uh, Jacob and his two wives and his two surrogate women and they are the ones who uh, give birth to 12 sons, four moms, four so-called wives, 12 sons. And these men will form states uh, like, um, like states in the United States. They will, be given, uh, they will be given regions of Israel to occupy in the ages to come. I've got a map of that. And so what I want you to see for tonight, because we're going to talk about each son, because at Jacob's deathbed, he wants to pronounce a blessing, question mark, if we could call it that. He has some prophetic words for each boy. Now, and just so you know, this is what happens. There are regions. Each son uh, becomes the head of a family or clan. And, and there's 12 of them. And they make up the entire space of uh, Israel. And, and just so you know, when the Lord comes, it will be 10 times this size. Because the boundaries are given in the word of God. And they only have one-tenth, really, of what the biblical boundaries are uh, for Israel. But these are, these are the sons, and this is where they settled, and, and they have a description and uh, coming, and so now you have sort of uh, something to be thinking about when you think about, uh, when we talk about each one, where they're going to settle and what they're going to be known for. So thank you for that, Spencer. And so um, we've been studying, of course, so we'll get some context here. One of those 12 sons in particular, because mostly he's most resembles Jesus and the gospel. There are 102 similarities, uh, prophetically speaking. Um, and so Joseph is really the only one with a clean record in that he uh, really is a prophetic picture of Jesus. That uh, would make sense. Now, uh, he, Joseph, was in fact hated 
brutalized by the ten older brothers, uh, sold to slave traders and carried uh, him off to Egypt. That's where he ended up, where God raised him up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man, prince of Egypt. And the story of Joseph was super important because it explains to us how a prophecy given to Abraham in Genesis 15, way back then, uh, will come to pass. Here's the prophecy to Abraham from God. Your descendants will be foreigners in Egypt, mistreated and abused as slaves for 400 years, but I'll deliver them and bring them back uh, with a mighty uh, power. Uh, So uh, how did Abraham's people wind up in Egypt? Answer, the story of Joseph. So after the thug brothers... (coughs) who had four different moms, (laughs) had uh, their kid brother chained and shipped off to Egypt. That killer famine struck and the brothers were forced uh, to go to Egypt to find grain where they're going to get more than they bargained for, right? They're going to get their grain and their brother face to face who they tried to kill some 23 years earlier. He's in charge of Egypt and the one dispensing the life-saving foodstuffs. So, uh, After quite the ordeal, God leads these guys to repentance, confession of sin, and consequently reconciliation with their brother. Now once they've kissed and made up, quite literally, uh, Joseph invites all of the 70 Hebrews to Egypt. You see, that's how they get there. And uh, in order to save their lives, because there would be five additional years of this killer famine, uh, and had they not gone, they would have perished there in the land of Canaan. And so they picked up and moved to Egypt. They certainly overstayed their visas uh, because (laughs) five years will turn into 400 years And the 70 Hebrews, they were the only 70 Jewish people on the planet at the time. Uh, Those 70 Hebrews turn into 2 million. So the Egyptians will feel threatened. You know the story. The Jewish presence is flourishing. Somebody gets insecure and they get enslaved and mistreated and abused per the prophecy um, for 400 years. God has a nice little incubator where he can keep them separate from everybody else and grow them into a nation of 2 million people. I wouldn't uh, think that anybody uh, was pleased about the method of needing to be enslaved enslaved like that, uh, and then he brings them back um, to the promised land. So here we are. The final two chapters, unfinished business here, (laughs) the death of the patriarch Jacob. Jacob's time to die. Uh, He's 147, uh, and he is the father of these 12 tribes, these 12 sons. And so he's going to invite the 12 sons to his bedside, to speak a word over each one of them. And then also in the last chapter, we'll have to see how Joseph dies at 110, uh, the perfect age, the Egyptians used to say, uh, for a long and happy life uh, back in those times anyway. And so first up then, Jacob, uh, who is also called Israel, uh, he is near death and he summons the guys to his bedside, verses 1 and 2. 
Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. Now, a few things to notice in the introduction before we go one by one through the blessings. And so uh, that's a nice heading. Uh, if you're taking notes, Jacob blesses his sons. So I have written down here to everything, turn, turn, turn. Uh, it, because it's a shout out, I do it all the time now. It's my new thing I do. Uh, I, I like to use classic uh, iconic songs, uh, but uh, <laughs> according to my wife, and and so it, here's a shout out to the birds, classic oldie here that was uh, big in the '60s. Uh, they quoted from Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse one: "To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, and it's Jacob's turn to die." And so. It's sort of uh, going to be J Jacob's last will and testament. Uh, a few things to note uh, before uh, we begin here. Uh, first of all, you'll notice in your Bibles it's always set aside, uh, set apart as prose. It's like Isaiah. Isaiah is prophecy, but it's in uh, poetic form. And so right from the beginning, he's speaking very eloquently. And I think God is showing the boys that this is prophecy. And so it's, it's flowery, it's a lot of imagery, and uh, that's why it's set as it is in your Bibles, a little different than normal uh, print. And so the entire book of Isaiah is like that, which is amazing. Um, it, you could call it an oracle. It's just this prophetic, very profound an amazing uh, description of the sons, really. Now, uh, most Bibles or commentaries will entitle the section, uh, as I've been saying, Jacob blesses his sons. But after what, after you hear what he says uh, to some of them, you'll be wondering if blessing really is the right word or not. So, English, the English word blessing, of course, is this benevolent words spoken over someone, uh, prayer to seek God's favor, goodness, right? But in this case, so heads up as we dive in, some of his words are really harsh because the Lord is speaking truth, calling out some of their bad behavior and the consequences, and also commending others for honorable behavior. And we see uh, how such behavior, and this is important, can shape future generations. And in that sense, the blessings are prophetic. Son number one, he goes right down the order. So he may be old, uh, but the Holy Spirit reminds him he knows the order of his sons. And Reuben is the firstborn. Let's go with verses three and four. Reuben. Reuben, Reuben, <laughs> there you are, my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Well, you know, we could be forgiven for our sins, but sometimes our bad behavior comes from behind to bite us. And so 
Here's a life lesson. Note takers, ready? Privilege squandered and blessing forfeited by undisciplined passions. Yeah. You are my firstborn. Um, This is about blown potential. He should have been the heir. He should have been the executor of the uh, executor, I should say, (laughs) of the estate. Yeah, he was trying to be an executor of his brother uh, earlier (laughs) in life. Uh, Taken, uh, he should have taken leadership and inherited a double portion. Uh, Instead, uh, he took the honor and strength that he started with. He had honor and strength and ability, and he he really blew it. Now, uh, one of my friend's high school yearbook quotes underneath his senior picture has been with me my whole life. Saddest words of tongue or pen are these. It might have been. I have thought about that my entire life, and hopefully it has helped me to act in good uh, ways concerning the Lord. And so Reuben started well. The ability was there, but sexual immorality uh, took him down to his father's bed of all places, where he slept with his one of his surrogate wives, Bilhah, right? That was her name. She was the mother of of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. They had an affair. And, you know, he says, listen, here's the trouble with you. And here's the root of your problem. You were unstable as water. The Hebrew word uh, unstable, turbulence is really good. Formless. If your passion splashed this way, you go that way. If you get a prompt this way, react like this. You just go. You don't stop. You don't think. You don't consider the consequences. Because what me wants, me needs, and me has to have, you know? And so if me wants my father's wife, oh, and the Lord spoke to Cain when he was sulking because God rebuked him. And he's thinking about killing his brother. He's so angry. And the Lord gets a hold of him and says, bro, listen up. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, like for lunch. (laughs) But you must subdue it and master it, Genesis chapter 4. But of course he doesn't. He crouches on him and he just stands in there and lets it happen and destroys his life. God desires stability in leaders and self-control. And anyone who desires his blessing, uh, you have to master your sin. I'll just just one more thing. I, you know, uh, Galatians chapter 5 says this. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the cravings of your sinful nature. Galatians 5 and verse 16, that's what it is. You know what he's, he's going to say? He's going to say, execute these kinds of vices in our lives um, because, of, I mean, it's life. Okay, going on to uh, sons number two and three, Simeon and Levi. 
Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their their swords and their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. All right. It's a twofer. These two brothers, it says they're brothers, but they're all brothers, but these two are two peas in a pod. They're, they're really um, two, two of a kind, really. Here's your life lesson. You take it notes. Lawlessness and brutality are not compatible with godly leadership and spiritual blessing from God. So Simeon and Levi, uh, they're two of a kind, and uh, they're summed up in one way they have a temper problem. And uh, rage leads to cruelty. Uh, You'll remember what this is talking about, Genesis 34. A horrifying incident, a mass slaughter of all the men of a village of Shechem. And uh, it was out of vengeance for their sister Dinah, the one girl born to the whole lot. (laughs) And um, uh, she was raped. And so that evil behavior does come back to bite us, and here it is. Um, Dad was kind of passive when it happened and uh, didn't really do much about it. And just the the, the heinous nature of the deed kind of spurred the brothers on, and I'm sure, no doubt, they justified themselves and said they have a righteous indignation and vigilantism, and uh, God forbids uh, that. That's just the problem, is it wasn't righteous indignation. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And so uh, they went in and they did cruel things even to the oxen, and God wants to cite them for that. God says, you know, you didn't have to do that. Cruelty to uh, the cattle there. They just went crazy and they went on some kind of horror movie, uh, serial killing. And um, apparently uh, that kind of temper and propensity to anger uh, is going to be passed down through the generations. And so when he says, let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, it's really a prayer of protection and separating. He says, what do I have to do with you? You're my son, but who are you? You know, what kind of behavior is that for men who claim to know God, right? To be in covenant with God. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, he he's asking God, please protect me from entering into that kind of thinking, that natural tendency to react in anger if to someone smacks you on the cheek, to uh, smack them back only harder. So interesting, uh, number one, son, failure to control his lust, and number two and three, failure to control their anger. Here's a New Testament admonition. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, Reuben. Impurity, lust, evil desires, uh, anger, great anger. Colossians 3, 5. It says, kill your sin or your sin will kill you. 
that's really the idea there. And so uh, when he says the, the, the consequence of being scattered is, is that it, there's a negative and a positive. Uh, the negative is the tribe of uh, Simeon was very small and it just got scattered. And the idea behind scattering them is don't let them come together collectively because they're a bunch of hotheads. And, and, and really, unbelievably so, that uh, through all those generations can maintain a kind of uh, uh, a vice like that, a propensity to follow from generation to generation. I want to say this. If you're born into a train wreck of, uh, of dysfunction and sin and all kinds of terrible things, make a choice. I will not replicate this behavior. I will turn to God. I will, I, I, you don't have to live that way. There is no, nothing in these verses that say God is going to predestine somebody because of somebody's bad behavior a few generations ago that God would predestine somebody or predispose them. No, we have free will. We look around and say, I, you know, three generations of alcoholics. Sorry, I'm going to pass. I'm not doing it. Sorry. So yeah, don't get pessimistic about this. Like this, or God is doing something like to uh, predetermine things. The positive scattering is for the tribe of Levi. He's going to scatter them, and they're going to be Levitical priests. So they're not going to have a property, but they're going to be like everybody's town. Uh, pastor there of sorts. And so the Lord is their inheritance. And why did God do that for them? Well, because do you remember the golden calf situation? They redeemed themselves because Moses stands up and goes, okay, the bunch of you, you whoever's on the side of the Lord, come over to me. And the Levites came over and God says, I like that. So I'm going to redeem the scattering so that you're going to be the, the, the village pastors. Uh, because, you know, one writer said, um, it lightens the stroke to draw near to him who handles the rod. I love that. When we suffer uh, from our sin, we should draw near to God and anticipate that in mercy he will turn our suffering into blessing. Are you ready for the next one? You ready for some good news? Yeah. You know what? It's time to hear about Judah. Let's bring it. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Now, I'm sure Judah's like, whew. <laughs> After one, two, and three, he's like, oh, I just grazed a bullet there. <laughs> Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O oh Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dare rouse him? Yeah, let's talk about that. Oh, I think we go on. We go on, because there's a lot to say about him for a good reason. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, comes, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine. 
His robes will be his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. Okay, we can go back to eight through uh, eight and nine. There we'll walk through it. Life lesson: Courageous hearts, those who put themselves at risk, uh, willing to sacrifice their own well-being for the well-being of others and the honor of God, often find themselves in places of blessing. All right, so Judah probably, after hearing that, thinks he won the lottery because a big sigh of relief, um, as I said, after the first three uh, went down in flames, sort of, if I can say that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, serious grace here. Why? Because Judah, Judah doesn't have a clean record. We all know that. He's no altar boy. You know, he, he has definitely had his fair share of problems and mess-ups. Uh, the brother... He is the brother who suggested profiting off of Joseph. The others wanted to kill him or leave him down in the hole. And he said, okay, let's not kill him. Let's just make some money. That's Judah. And they sold sold him for, what was it, 20 pieces of uh, silver. And And then he went on to marry a Canaanite. Oh, you are not allowed to marry Canaanites. And he married a Canaanite and had a terrible, shameful experience. He was a terrible father, uh, grown sons, awful, the Lord's judgment on the family, the daughter-in-law, Tamar, you know, yikes with that whole story, and um, which... uh, which seems to be the beginning of a softening of his heart through that terrible humiliation and ordeal, he starts to repent. This is the beginning. And through the the fruition happens with the whole Joseph thing. And so he ends up uh, emerging from the Joseph story, a man willing to sacrifice his life. And of course you know who Judah is, right? I'm going to tell you just how I'm going to, you already know, but let's pretend like you don't know. Act surprised when I tell you, right? <laughs> the, bottom, the bottom line is from his descendants, kings will come. Not just any kings, the Judean kings. The kings of Israel, when Israel splits, they have a civil war. And for what, almost 200 years or so, they're divided and Israel in the north, 10 tribes have their own king. And the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, have, one, have a king. The Judean kings, eight of the 20, are good. The northern kings, they're all bad. They're all evil. See, now, so King David, King Solomon, King Jehoshaphat, King Hezekiah, King Jos- Josiah, they're all blood grandsons, direct grandsons uh, to Judah. Now, you know where this is going, right? Because um, how many generations? About 40 generations from Judah in the direct line of grand, great-grandchild, great-grandson, great-grandson, direct all the way to Jesus. And so this man is blood to the Son of God. Uh, Now, the Son of God has a human nature. He's 100% God because he had no earthly father. So that's an amazing thing. So what he's saying here, and we can go to the next slide, starting there, I'm talking about verse 10. 
The king, my son, the, with a capital K, is, is coming through you, my boy. So here's a paraphrase. Judah, you're like a strong young lion, devours its prey like a lion crouching. Who, who dares going to mess with him? The kings that come from you will continue until that one king who takes his rightful place and all the world will come before him and honor him. So yeah, he's talking about Jesus, the son of God, the king of kings and lord of lords is going to come through you. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Philippians 2. Uh, They will bow before and confess that Jesus is Lord (laughs) um, to Judah's great grandson. That's amazing. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 calls Jesus the lion from the tribe of Judah quoting these words here. And so now 11 through 12, I just love it. It's a shout out to the millennial kingdom. It's called the golden age where Israel is exalted and is the superpower of the coming kingdom. And uh, it speaks of blessing and abundance and, and the reign of Jesus physically, the son of God, visible uh, physically right there on a throne reigning and ruling and in a world that Jesus referred to as paradise and uh, just a land of over-the-top abundance and provision and wealth and luxury. Now, that's what these verses mean, 11. Tying your donkey to the vine. What does that mean? It's very cryptic. You wouldn't know it if you didn't study this. Um, Normally not a smart thing to do, to tie your donkey to the vine, because guess what? The the donkey will devour the vine. But in the coming age of abundance, nobody gives a thought about anything like that. Tie the donkey to a full-on vine and take the muzzle off. Who cares? There's so much everywhere. It just, that's the idea there. Somebody needed a ride. It's the kind of wealth that says somebody needs a ride. You loan them the car and you say, just keep it. I got plenty of cars. You see, must be nice, right? Or you uh, use a $100 bill as a napkin. Or you need to jot something down. Hold on, hold on. I only got a $100 bill. Let me write it here. That's the idea. Who cares? There's plenty of $100 bills. Like they're everywhere kind of thing. So verse 11, washing your robe in wine is a prophecy speaking of the king's victory over his enemies. And uh, the imagery comes from Isaiah 63, 1 and 6, who actually Isaiah will look back on this and just being moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, But when Jesus comes, Revelation 19, King Kings, he appears, what, with robes, what, dipped in blood, but there's a parallel there, the color. And so what, what, what washed in wine, yeah, the robes, is saying the warrior has not his own blood, but the blood of his enemies because he trampled them and destroyed them all. And so it's as if somebody was with their white garments tramping over the grapes and the mess that would make on their white garments. And so that's the parallelism uh, there. Uh, yeah. So, and the, the, the always talking about wine was the symbol of gladness and joy of the coming age. Uh, the writers always talk about the wine that God speaks of 
is the gladness and joy, a wine without woe, because the curse will be lifted and there'll be no abuse and alcoholism and all of that. And so we scarcely can even talk about this glorious thing where Jesus says the kingdom The messianic kingdom has begun with my first miracle, turning the water into wine. And they all knew that it's from the tribe of Judah there. And so he was sending a a very loud messianic uh, kingdom uh, message there. Dark eyes and white teeth, verse 12, is the personal attractiveness of that clan. And many from that clan were called out as super attractive. And so, uh, and, and, and of course, it leads to uh, the beauty of the Lord himself. And in Sol- Song of Solomon-esque kind of poetry, uh, these dark, attractive eyes and this winsome uh, smile there with the white, white teeth. All right, so let's continue. Now, some shorter little shout outs about some sons, and here they come like a buck, buckshot blessings, okay? Zebulun. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend t- towards Sidon. That's it. <laughs> and another, I think another, phew, you know, he's like, beach, beachfront property. <laughs> I'm okay with this. I mean, it could have been a lot worse, you know, but uh, it's more than that, of course. There's the, it's pleasant. It's morally neutral. Uh, but here, here's what's going on. Uh, Zebulun is in between two seashores, the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. And so to be, uh, to, to, he is, uh, Nazareth is in Zebulun. So to, to associate the sea shore there with the Sea of Galilee as a safe haven because the Son of God does his ministry there, I think there's a little bit of prophetic pointing going on there. Issachar, 14 and 15. Issachar is a raw bone donkey. Now, you know, some guys just don't have any luck at all. They're just going to get called out like that. He's a donkey lying down between two saddle bags when he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is this land. He will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Let's talk about Issachar. Um, Yeah, I don't know about you. I'd rather be called a young lion. That donkey. Life lesson here. He preferred luxury and abundance, so he traded his personal freedom for material gain by submitting to forced labor. And which turned out to be the case. The people who lived in the valley where Issachar is. they were determined and they were hard workers. Uh, uh, but the invading armies came through there in their border town. And so, uh, the, and the Canaanites, we have record all through the Old Testament of them being conscripted uh, to forced labor. Uh, and, and it seems that they were just too lazy uh, to put up a fight. They didn't care about their freedom. As long as they got three squares a, a, a day and got to live there, they were like, fine. 
So one writer said, weak-willed people like the clan of Issachar often allow themselves to be taken captive by various kinds of masters. If, if they deem the benefits as a slave, that they outweigh the benefits that come from hard work and personal uh, liberty, they'll go with the submitting to the forced uh, labor. Okay, Dan comes next. He's number seven, if you're taking notes. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside. Not good. Uh, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that the rider tumbles backwards. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. This is interesting. This is an interesting one. One of my favorites just because it's so intriguing. So the judges, uh, several judges come from Dan, of course, because it's the word of God and it's true. And you know uh, who's, who's one of his grandsons? Samson. So the, uh, indeed, <laughs> Dan did judge the people. The, the judges were before the kings and they were kind of warrior leaders who saved the day and then the people made them the leader. And so it was a bad period in Israel's history for sure. Now let's talk about the snake and the striking. And there's some deceptive and rolling the horse back. And, and nobody knows, is it the enemy horse or is, it, is he biting at their own horses, their own riders? And that's what it seems to be, is that he's some sort of traitor. Somebody is a deceitful warrior who's going to be a traitor to the Jews. And it is rumored that the Antichrist, who is supposed to be a Jew, uh, is going to come from the line of Dan. Uh, and, and by the way, Dan is up in north, and if you come uh, to the Israel tour, uh, you will see the ruins of the altar where the calves were. And so Dan, the Danites, introduced the terrible sin of idolatry to uh, Israel up north. And they put up those golden calves again, and boom. So it was fulfilled even in that regard with the serpent biting and causing you know, all kinds of havoc. Uh, but I'm interested in the Antichrist thing. Um, and, and what, uh, if you'd like to read more about this, it's Daniel 11 and verse 37 and Jeremiah 8 and verse 16. Further evidence that supports this is, is that when the, in Revelation chapter 7, when there's a roll call for the 12 tribes, Dan is missing. There's no Dan. During the tribulation, do you see? And why? Who's reigning and ruling during the tribulation and causing Israel terrible bloodshed? The Antichrist. So is there a reason why? I mean, God didn't forget the tribe. And then in the millennial kingdom, after Christ returns, they're listed first in the roll call. So, so people are like, oh, okay. God says, I don't even want them mentioned <laughs> during the tribulation. But after Christ comes and Israel turns to their Messiah, and it's a brand new day, roll call starts with 
Dan, because he's redemptive, and he brings them back. I, I think it's something to think about. You know, could be, could not be. Gad is coming next. He has the gift of Gad. <laughs> Whatever. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, um, but he will attack them at their heels. This is a quick one. You know, just says he's another border town. The border towns got it bad because the invading uh, forces would come in. And so just the it was right where the Arabs would come uh, from the east. And uh, uh, here's the point. They, you're going to get attacked a lot, but no worries. You win in the end. That's exactly uh, what, he, what he's saying. And one writer pointed out, and it's a nice word to all God's children. We get attacked, but get good news. <laughs> you know, you win. Uh, verse 20, Asher. Now, this poor guy. Asher's food will be rich. He'll provide delicacies fit for a king. You know why I say poor guy? Because you know as soon as dad dies and they bury him and life goes on, they're going to tease him. They're, they're going to tease each other. And I just think, you know, what, you know they're going to tease him for b- his baked goods. You know, <laughs> whatever. I have siblings. I'm the oldest and I know how to tease them. And I just think in those terms, I guess. Uh, so the territory near the Jordan on the east there, uh, was really fertile farmland, and these guys grew really good wheat, and they applied much skill, and they were known for the best baked goods in the nation, and they would supply bread to the palace in Jerusalem. And so, yeah, roll your eyes at that, brothers, you know. So a nice compliment to be known for excellence in something that you do that makes you distinct and really sought out by people of influence. Uh, number, son number 10, Naphtali, another one I think they'll tease. I don't know. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. You know, I can just hear the brothers like, what does that even mean? You know, or, or prancing around, oh, I'm a doe set free. <laughs> Don't you know, I'm going to ask him, did your brothers ever dance around going, I'm a doe, set free. (laughs) You know they're jealous of each other, right? All right, son number 10. Now in the Hebrew, it can go two ways. It can go, uh, Naphtali is like a doe set free. You know, if you had this doe, this deer that's in a cage and you open the door, it's just beautiful, right? And then it can either mean bears beautiful fonts or, or bears beautiful words. So there's some a little bit of either way there. Uh, but you know what? Either way is true. A heart set free replicates freedom in others. Or, or is it talking about freedom that comes from gracious words? The land of Naphtali. Guess what town is in the center of Naphtali? Capernaum. This is where Jesus did 80% of his teaching and his miracles. So if you can't associate a doe being set free and leaping for joy all over that place and the gracious words, it was his gracious words. He was described as speaking as grace dripping from his lips in the Greek. It dripped from him. 
And that grace set people free there. He said that. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, just a beautiful thing. we got to get moving. Let's see what happens here. Okay, we're, we're okay still. All right, two slides uh, through with Joseph, because he's the favorite, right? So when, as soon as he said Joseph, everybody rolled, <laughs> rolled their eyes. <laughs> Maybe not, but, you know, I think a lot. Of, I mean, it's serious. Dad's gasping and, you know. Uh, Joseph's a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, well watered, uh, whose branches climb over a wall. Just this lush, fruitful, productive guy who's always doing something for God and enriching other people. Well, you're fruitful. Uh, fruit uh, refreshes people and nourishes them. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. He eyes all of them. You know, they're the archers right around the bed. Uh, but his bow remains steady, his arms strong, uh, staying limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. That's cool. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Let's keep going there. Because of your father's God, it's just he loves the Lord who helps you because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and the womb. Uh, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of ancient mountains, than the bounty of age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Now you'll notice that Joseph isn't named as a clan <laughs> Uh, one of the 12 tribes. You don't have the tribe of Joseph. You have the tribe of his two um, children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so they are the two half-tribes of Joseph. And so uh, they, that is the pocket, the sweet spot of Israel. And so the strength, the dignity, the honor, anything good, the power, the victory, it always comes from Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, that is really the idea of what's going on here, but uh, really that this man's uh, fruitful uh, uh, nature was fed by a well-watered garden, well-watered roots there out of his, uh, out of his um, pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, out of his relationship with God came this well-watered tree. And it's very Psalm 1 there with the leaves that don't wither and the fruit that just remains ripe all year uh, round. And so, uh, and, and the other thing is they hated him and that even in his woundedness and people trying to kill him and uh, being falsely accused, he was still productive. He still went forward. And uh, so let's finish up with Benjamin and then speed through. Benjamin, the last brother, is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the plunder. And so there we go. Now we'll wrap up. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So yeah, Benjamin 
Um, this was a tribe with the reputation of being ferocious and unbelievably so. There's all kinds of Benjamites uh, with ferocious tempers. Ehud is a Benjamite in Judges 3. Saul, uh, Saul, Saul, Saul the first king was um, and did Saul did terrible things. Remember when he went in and killed all the priests uh, at Nob because he mad at David? He's a Benjamite. Saul, the Saul who became Paul, is from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's this fierceness. Just amazing uh, how God can call it thousands of years before. Wow. So. Uh, one writer said, would to God he grant all his children a ferocious spirit, fierce in desire to love him with all our hearts and to do his will with every ounce of energy he provides. Okay, ready? Buckle your seatbelts, let's speed. Come on, 29. Okay, so then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. They're in Canaan, right? The cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Let's talk about family values. He's like, you know, we, we've already heard, because he kind of had a private time with Joseph. He's like, get me out of here. Um, this isn't my place. I need to be buried with my people. I could be buried like a pharaoh. He could be, too. Uh, beneath an incredible monument, remembered down through the ages. But an obscure cave in the promised land will do just fine. I'll be with my people, the promised people, the chosen people in the promised land with the promises of God. Uh, actually, you know, at the end of one's life is a really good time to witness uh, to the future promises of God. Uh, amazing timing. He finishes the blessings and promptly dies. And Charles Spurgeon said this, Jacob is immortal till his work was done. So long as God had another sentence for him to speak, death could not paralyze his tongue, nor your tongue, nor mine. You are indestructible until your expiration date when God says, okay, it's time to come home now because you've said everything you need to say and you've done everything you need to do, even though it seldom appears that way to us. Amen? Let's do chapter 50 just because, right? Because it's there. And, and here's what we're going to do. I'll just make a couple comments here and there until we get to the motto, and then I'll just kind of bring that out, and then we'll be done. Verses 1 through 3. Joseph throws himself upon his father, weeps over him, kisses him. Then Joseph directed the physicians and his servants to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 
40 days, and for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him uh, 70 days. Special and touching relationship with the son to his dad. Uh, Grandchildren are the crowning glory of the aged, Proverbs says, but parents are the pride of their children, and uh, or it should be that way. But it often is not that way. But in this case, uh, Joseph knows the truth. And uh, that's expressed here. And it's beautiful. Uh, Incredible respect shown for Jacob. Uh, 72 days was mourning for Pharaoh. 70 days, only two days short for this man. And uh, that's an amazing thing. Verse 4 through 6. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear on an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I'll return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Okay, so Joseph is using an intermediary. Why? He's not shaving. He's mourning, and uh, Egyptians don't do the hair. So he's not going into Pharaoh's presence unshaven and in mourning. Uh, Notice the diplomacy. Look, uh, Pharaoh, it's not that we think Egypt is a bad place uh, to be buried. Uh, You know, it's not like we didn't uh, find, uh, we're not grateful for all that you've done here. You know, hey, we we don't want to get buried here. You know, so he does it in a really polite and uh, uh, diplomatic way that uh, shows him, look, it's a, he made me swear, which is true. And so, yeah, Pharaoh loves him and says, permission granted, of course. Uh, Two slides now. Seven uh, through 11. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of Pharaoh's court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with them. It was a very large company continuing on. So when they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. Wow. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning and threshing floor of Atad, uh, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. All right, we can talk a little bit about that. Jacob's a big deal, and he's an imperfect man with lots of problems. But God had chosen the weak things, the foolish things of this world, and um, he does that to display his grace and power through our weakness. And so faith in God makes a nobody into a somebody, and uh, somebody for whom angels are sent to serve. That would be you. If you struggle with a big ego, just block your ears right now. <laughs> Ready? Okay, I see a few people doing that. <laughs> but you're you're pretty you're a big deal. You're a big deal. 
I mean, the problem is when you think you're a big deal, right? Then you ruin everything. Uh, but uh, angels attend you. And God lives in you. And he doesn't live in everybody. Of 12 through 14, buttoning up here. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave there where he asked to be, which Abraham had bought. Uh, After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So buttoning up. So here's the thing. The mission's accomplished. The oath has been kept. Their father has been honored. Uh, Hearts have been focusing not on the glories of Egypt, but on the promises of God uh, there in the land that he had given them. Homestretch 15 through 18, almost there. This is the fun part right here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their dad was gone, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs he did we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. While you were out of the room, he said, this is what you need to tell Joseph when he gets back. And whoops, we forgot to tell you. I ask you to forgive Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Whoa, they throw in the father too, you know, for Joseph's sake there. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So I have written down here, liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) All 10 of you, all 10 of you. Stop it. You know, that is so. And we see right there, we read the motivation. They're afraid. Dad dead and gone now, and he had, he had, there's no buffer here, you know. And so uh, they feel justified to lie. And liars do this all the time. One of their downfalls is when they feel threatened or insecure, they got to cover themselves. That's why we lie. The number one reason we lie is to protect ourselves. Uh, so, or from what we think in our minds anyway. And so they think he's going to go berserk. So, you know, hey, Joseph, dad, who loved you more than life itself, (laughs) before he passed, he said, please forgive those scoundrel brothers of yours who hurt you so badly. So please forgive us. And we're your slaves. And, And Joseph cries. Why is he crying? You think he's moved with emotion here? No. No. He's hurt and upset that they're still living in the past. They can't move forward. Uh, They still doubt his character, like he's holding grudges. They're still very broken men, and so that makes him sad. Verses 19 and following, we're almost there. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done Hello, the saving of many people's lives. So then don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Of course, this is the takeaway of takeaways. This is the key passage 
for the book of Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph, and the entire Bible, I think, regarding Christian living, especially when you've been hurt or wounded or victimized in any way. And so, yeah, just pay attention here uh, because this attitude of Joseph's, which we've talked about before, guarantees blessing, productivity, spiritual health, emotional health, mental well-being. I cannot overemphasize this uh, enough. Here's the secret to a happy life. Here it is. It's all in a couple uh, attitudes. First of all, he knows what God requires of him. And he knows where his responsibilities end and God's responsibility begins. He tells him, am I in the place of God? Joseph knows his place, verse 19. It's not my job to avenge myself. That's God's job. So why would I even think about harming you when that's God's job? If he wants to discipline you or punish you, that's his choice. But I'm not involved in the matter because I'm not God. Because vengeance is his, says the Lord. It is his to repay. And um, quoting, uh, when Romans 12 quotes that, Paul quotes that, he's quoting the Old Testament, by the way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's mine to repay. So he says, my job, my job is to forgive. That's the job of all people who've been victimized. We have one job, is never to retaliate. It may be okay to protect yourself, obviously, but you can't have revenge. So he, he could have made life miserable for those 10 guys. Uh, you know, he could have shown up at their houses, pulled up in the royal chariot w- with 10 shovels, <laughs> gone up to each of them and said, here's a shovel for you, here's a shovel for you, here's a shovel, and then give them all shovels and say, now, I want you to do... An empty well. <laughs> you know, a cistern, you know, let's talk about, I don't know, what was it, 30 years ago? 30 years ago, you know what it looked like, right? The one you threw me in. So I just start digging. Start digging now. He could have done that. Can you imagine the, the chariot pulling up at Mrs. Potiphar's house? Hi, it's me. <laughs> Remember me, the robe, you know, here's my robe now, you know. <laughs> But you know what? Godly people know enough not to stoop to their persecutors' levels. You see, it's not in them. It's not in them. Unless, of course, it is in you, and you're just like them, only worse. And then you'll show your true colors. You know, you're going to do me like that? Well, watch what I'm going to do to you, right? So you're no better than that. They are. You're just right. <laughs> You're two peas in a pod, you and your abuser. He's not like that. The secret to a happy life, here it is. Here's the attitude, right here. True, this is true. You meant evil. You, you tried to harm me. But God hit the override button. And God meant it for good. Now, listen, God didn't do this to me. He didn't inspire it. It wasn't his idea. Because God is incapable of sin, and he is light, and in him is no darkness. But God found a way to take a terrible, evil thing 
and do something good. Take a look around you. People's lives are being saved. Can we think about that? Let's just focus on the good that God did. Uh, And you have confessed your sin. Let's get on with our lives. Like the cross, the worst thing that ever happened in human history is the crucifixion of the Son of God. And it became the best thing that ever happened without justifying those who crucified him. God just has this way. We can't really figure it all out. But he says, I choose to, and he's living out Romans 8.28, isn't he? I'm going to make a choice. Everything that happens to me, I'm not a victim of the person or the thing. I'm a child of God, and God is calling the shots and is sovereign over my life. Therefore, since he's good and he loves me and has promised to use everything for good, therefore I can let go of all this, the responsibility to uh, uh, blaming the person or the thing or the situation and say, God, I look forward to you and your good purposes through this thing. Wow, that there it is. Verse 22 to 26, and we're done. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of one of Ephraim's children and also two generations of Manasseh's. And they're put on Joseph's knees. That's really cool. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. And he knows it's 400 years. He knows that. Why? Because Abraham told it to Isaac, and Isaac told it to Jacob, and Jacob told it to Joseph. They know how long they're going to be there. Genesis 15, 400 years. So at the end of 400 years, God is going to take you up out of this land and to the land he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on an oath and say, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and they embalmed him there and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt but was not buried. And somehow, some way, there was a permanent place for him, maybe enshrouded by cement, maybe, but that coffin was there with instructions on it. And you know that he had the power to do these kinds of things and say on the tomb, move this coffin and die, (laughs) right? And so nobody went near that for 400 years. Kids were asking their dad, what is this coffin here? wherever it was. Well, let me tell you the story. And there was a story that always went along. There was this man, and he served this God who made promises to this people, and he wants to be buried there. Well, how is he going to get there? Well, Exodus chapter (laughs) 1, you know, we've got Moses coming onto the scene, but 400 years. Now, you know, that's a long time to wait for a promise, 400 years. And some of you are thinking, you know, it kind of feels like 400 years for me and the things I'm waiting on, but it hasn't been 400 years. But what gets me is that God can keep a promise even when it's 400 years old. And so um, big takeaway here is he's not impressed, of course, like his dad, with the wealth and the power. This man 
He had the greatest power on earth at the time. The greatest wealth on earth at the time. And he says on his deathbed, get me out of here. Put me in the cave. Some cave, you can't even find it. I think they, they know where it is. Some dark cave. Put me there. That's where my hope is. That's where life is. Oh, don't, don't leave me here. Swear to me that you'll put me back where the promises are rich. And his people will thrive where Messiah will come and split the Mount of Olives in two and reign and rule with his people forever. Take away for me tonight is this. Trust God through the twists and turns of your life. Just trust him. Not on your own understanding. Well, none of it will make sense. Hardly anything in your life is going to make sense. Amen? Oh, I thought so. Humble yourself under his hand, and in due time he promises I'll exalt you and see every bad thing that has ever happened or will ever happen as something God can use for good and live by this motto. What was meant for evil, God has purposed for good. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for getting us through two chapters again. Just out of necessity, Lord, this, yeah, we can't have the sanctuary be in use uh, anymore after tonight. So thank you for the patience of your people and just, Lord, the things you taught us tonight. Um, help them go down deep and become a part of us. And now as we just kind of worship and have an extended time of prayer, um, we pray that your spirit would work in a mighty way. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.